the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. to the program it's Friday we've gotten through another week here on the program hi I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio Texas and you're listening to the word to stand on for life a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your bible questions or life questions or pretty much anything else that's going on in your heart and mind the way that you can ask those questions is to call area code 210 Three four zero ninety five eighty five. That's three four zero ninety five eighty five. Or if you're outside the local area, you can call toll free by dialing eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. Numerically, that's six three zero five seven five seven. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. You can send the questions in that way as well. I remind you every day that if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the Call Now button, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Because it's Friday, we've got a New Testament study tonight. I'm going to be dealing with really one of the more remarkable statements in all of Scripture in Acts chapter 17. Uh, We're going to finish the chapter tonight, Acts, I think, uh, 17, verse 16, through the end of the chapter. Um, really, really is instructive for us. Uh, And what it says about God is absolutely spectacular. On Sunday here at our church, we're going to be um, talking about um, Jesus' circumcision and Simeon, who is waiting for the Savior of Israel. Um, That's in chapter 2, so we're going to be doing that. Wherever you go to church, go with an open heart, Go with a willingness to be used by God to minister to others. Don't go expecting to get ministered to, but rather to be a minister to those who are lost and hurting and hungry and broken and needy and confused. Make yourself available to the Lord. And then I promise you two things. One, He will use you. There will be divine appointments. And secondly, I promise you'll get blessed. It's only when we're trying to get blessed that it seems to be elusive But when we're serving the Lord, we just can't help but to be blessed because that's what happens. Final thought on this. Nothing breaks a pastor's heart more than watching people sort of on the fringes of a church. People that come in, they sit down, they go, and it's like, well, okay, I did my Jesus thing. We are the church. So get involved. Get involved. We had a young woman. I mean, not everybody's a young woman compared to me, but she was a lot younger than me. But after three times here, she decided that this could be her home church. She said, Pastor Ron, I want to get involved right away. So who do I see? That's somebody that God is going to use. So go to church, be usable this week, and see what happens. We have an interesting week on the program next week. 
for you. Um, on Wednesday, I'm going to be having our graduating seniors. We do that every year. Uh, next week is our high school awards banquet on Tuesday, our graduation on Thursday. We're right in the middle. Uh, Paul and I on Wednesday have the privilege of taking uh, our graduating seniors to lunch. We do that every year. And then uh, we bring them back here to the studio, and uh, they do the program. And it's always a blessing. So that's coming up on Wednesday of next week on the program. Okay, one more time for a phone number, and then we'll get to questions. Three four zero ninety five. 85 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our mobile app from Nacho. Uh, Pastor Ron, it's just an observation. Jeremiah 15.1 says, Even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me. He says, I read that as a confirmation as to where God's people were before Christ came to them. They were in paradise. If not, I would expect Moses and Samuel would have been before God, your thoughts. Uh, not true. You're, you're right. That's exactly where they were. We can read in Luke chapter 16 that they were in the place called Abraham's bosom or paradise. But that misses the point of this passage of Scripture completely. So, yes, you are right. Moses and Samuel were not standing before the Lord. They were in paradise uh, upon their death, to be sure. But here's what the passage is really telling us. I'm going to go back a few verses um, uh, in Jeremiah, um, uh, at the end of chapter 14, um, Jeremiah is, is sort of coming to grips with the visions that God has given him. He says, if I go into the country, I see those slain by the sword. If I go into the city, I see the ravages of famine. Both prophet and priest have gone to a land they know not. And then he asked a question that we would ask. Have you rejected Judah completely? Do you despise Zion? Why have you afflicted us so that we cannot be healed? We hope for peace, but no good has come for a time of healing. But there's only terror. And then Jeremiah says, O Lord, we acknowledge our wickedness and the guilt of our fathers. We've indeed sinned against you for the sake of your name. Do not despise us. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember your covenant with us and do not break it. Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No, it is you, O Lord, our God. Therefore, our hope is in you, for you are the one who does all of this. Now, I read those verses because what we've got here is Jeremiah, in response to the visions that God has given him, pleading with God to relent. Don't do this, O Lord, is what he's saying. The, the, the idols of the heathen nations, they have no value, but you, O God, are our hope. And when we go into chapter 15, verse 1, the Lord cuts him off. Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to this people. Send them away from my presence. Let them go. If they ask you, where shall we go? Tell them, this is what the Lord says. Those destined for death to death, those for the sword to the sword, those for starvation to starvation, those for captivity to captivity. I will send four kinds of destroyers against them. Now, all this is simply saying that judgment has already been decreed. And even if Moses, the most noted of all of the interceders, the pictures of Christ in the Old Testament, or Samuel, the last judge and a great prophet of God, even if they were to stand before the Lord and beg, God is saying, no, judgment is settled. Judgment is set. Now, as Christians, not sure, we don't like to hear that. We like to think, well, we can move God's heart, and sometimes we can. But this is a passage of Scripture where God is declaring to Jeremiah, his prophet, that these things are now set in stone. The sin has gone too far. There's no other remedy but judgment. They're going to be captives in Babylon for 70 years. There's going to be three different exiles, three different waves of prisoners taken into Babylon. Ezekiel, by the way, is one of those who's taken into captivity. Jeremiah is given a choice to go to Babylon and live out his days in relative peace and comfort or to stay in Jerusalem. And he chooses, of course, to stay in Jerusalem. But here's the point. It's too late. Judgment has been decreed. The verdict is in. Now, I, I went to all of that length 
because sometimes, especially in our culture, again, based on some of the questions that we get on this program about hell, why wouldn't God just have people die? Or maybe everybody's going to go to heaven. Judgment has been decreed already for those who reject Jesus Christ. And a time is coming when it's going to be too late. Now, that time isn't now. But the reason it's important for us to understand that a time is coming when it's too late is so that we'll have some passion, some sense of urgency in telling people about the goodness of our God. So, Nacho, you're correcting your observation. That's kind of not the point of the passage, but it is a an important point. Here is a question we got yesterday from... Um, Thomas, on, uh, toward the end of the program from our email inbox, uh, it says, Hi, Pastor I'm glad you're doing well. And then in parentheses, I know you are because you're with Jesus. Thank you, Thomas. I am doing well. Can you please explain the practical application of two things in the simplest possible way? First, your phrase, Jesus, what about me and what about today? And second, taking thoughts captive and making them obedient to Christ. Thank you, and hopefully I'll be... Second traffic, so I can hear your answer. Thank you, Thomas. Making the most of the time, that's a good thing. Um, the first one, the phrase, what about Jesus, what about me, and what about today? Um, that, that's simply taking Paul's advice in Romans chapter 12, offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship or our reasonable service, the King James says. And so the reason I've sort of used that phrase for so many years, Thomas, is because that's where all of us need to be every single day. Now, we've got plans when we wake up in the morning. Most of us are going to get up, we're going to go to work, or we've got routines that we fall into. We know pretty much what's on our schedule. But but this question, Jesus, what about me and what about today, gives him the right, my permission. Now, God doesn't need my permission to do anything. But it shows that I'm partnering with him. I'm willing to cooperate with him. And what I'm saying is, Lord, yeah, I've got a Bible study tonight. I've got a radio show to do this afternoon. Uh, I've got some studying that I'm going to do uh, earlier than both of those things. Um, but Jesus, you are in charge of my schedule. You can interrupt me if you want to. I want to have a heart that will hear the calling of the Spirit. I want spiritual ears to hear if there's anything that you think I need to hear or anything that you've appointed for me to do that I'm unaware of. And sometimes, Thomas, we get so busy in this crazy, busy, loud world that we live in that that our Jesus sort of gets pushed into the background. So when I say that, and I say this daily, when I say that, I'm saying, Jesus, you're in the foreground. You're the priority in my life, serving you. It's what I was created to do. And so, Jesus, yeah, these are the things that I think. But thy will, not my will, be done. You know, I have usually, and I say this, I'm not trying to jinx myself or anything, but usually Saturday is a relatively inactive day, unless there's weddings or things like that. But but I try to rest as much as I can. Um, I'll get up in the morning and I'll walk with the Lord and, and we have prayer here at 9.30 in the morning so that's where I'm walking and and when I say Lord today of my own free will um, that the statement that offers my life to him I say Jesus today at least in my plans are that it's going to be relatively peaceful relatively inactive and restful but you might have something on your agenda that I don't have on mine and I want your agenda not mine Lord so, Thomas, that's what it is, and it's something that I practice on a daily basis. It, it just reminds me every day that I'm not my own, I'm bought with a price. And he controls what I do, where I go, and hopefully what I say. So I hope that explains that one. The other one is simply quoting Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Um, you know, we, we have an enemy who's always going to put sort of play mind games with us and put evil and wicked thoughts in our head. Um, we're going to get irritated because we're flesh. We're going to get irritated at people and think the worst of them instead of the best. Well, it's when we have those wicked thoughts. That's when we've got to sit down and say, Lord, 
I know the source of those thoughts. Those thoughts come from an enemy who wants to destroy me. So I'm going to take those thoughts captive, meaning I'm going to, I'm going to arrest those thoughts, and then I'm going to turn those thoughts into obedient thoughts toward you and for you. That's really the key to spiritual warfare. When Paul says, put on the helmet of salvation, uh, we're, to, we're to protect our brains, and there's always these crazy thoughts running through our mind, ugly, weird things planted in our brain by, by the enemy. Well, what we've got to do is recognize them as from the enemy, no longer deal with them or dwell on them. And then we say, Lord, I'm going to use those thoughts productively and turn them into thoughts of obedience. What about me and what about today? So they go very well together. But the second one, mostly, Thomas, is um, um, simply not being a slave to thoughts, not being a slave to anger that comes or unforgiveness that we want to hold on to. Instead, simply saying, Jesus, I want what you want for me, and so I'm going to be obedient. So identifying the source is the most important thing, and then dealing with it. What it means, Thomas, is that we don't have to be slaves to our emotions, slaves to our thoughts. We can simply turn them to pray. One key for me, Thomas, and others in the audience, I hope this helps, is when I find myself um, under attack with ugly thoughts or if I find myself getting impatient or angry with someone or some circumstance, I literally stop. Wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I literally stop and say, Jesus, I don't want that thought to dominate me. I don't want to let those thoughts turn into emotions where I respond unkindly to somebody or misrepresent you. So right now, I'm going to stop and pray. Now, if it's for people, if, if somebody's causing me pain, the way I do that is to pray for them. And in effect, or the effect of that, Thomas, is that I'm able to love them. Even if they're acting unlovable, I'm able to love them because when you pray for somebody... God changes your heart toward them. So, Thomas, great question. Thank you very much. I hope that answers your question. 340-9585, your live calls. Here is a timely question uh, from Annette. Uh, I've been keeping up with the royal wedding. But anyway, one of the things that caught my ear was that Megan had to relinquish her Catholic upbringing to become part of the Church of England. What is the difference between the two? And then she says, I'm just curious. Uh, Annette, a couple of things. Um, th- there's not a lot of difference. Um, the Anglican Church is the Church of England. It's the National Church of England. And uh, when you are born, you're baptized into the church. That certainly doesn't mean you're saved, but England, uh, Englishmen and women would, would, would argue with me. They would say, no, I'm baptized in the church. But you're not baptized into Christ. So the Anglican Church is the church, the National Church of England, obviously, because... Meghan Markle is marrying into uh, the royal family, she would have to represent the national church. Now, that says a couple of things. First, it says that she has no knowledge or passion in terms of relationship with her faith, any faith at all. I mean, think about it. If you can throw away what you believe or what you've been taught... Uh, simply to get married, then you really had no attachment to it at all. Um, And that's sad to me. It's really sad to me. Um, The second thing that it points out is that she doesn't understand the difference between religion and relationship. The Anglican Church, the American sort of offshoot of that is the Episcopal Church, and in both cases, the Anglican Church and the United States Episcopal Church, they've sort of thrown away the Bible, um, no longer holding to the, the, the inerrancy of the Word of God. They sort of make it up as they go along. Uh, both churches um, are very liturgical uh, in style, 
um, um, we would call them as born-again believers, very religious, uh, very unfulfilling, very empty. And it's a good opportunity to remind everybody that these are the kind of people, the people that think they're okay because they belong to a religion, but these are the people that we need to pray for. So that's the difference. The church, in terms of theory of the Episcopal Church, especially in the United States, is really very Catholic in in every facet of its service. Um, Obviously, they believe that uh, priests can marry in the Episcopal Church, in the Anglican Church. The Catholic Church does not. But that's just more style over substance. There's there's just not much difference um, between... Uh, between the churches. So I hope that helps. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Oh, I think this is our friend from Seguin, Bruce on line one. Bruce, thanks for calling. It's great to hear from you again. Thank you, Pastor Ron. I have a question. I don't know how relevant it is to modern-day Christian living, but I heard a preacher, a teacher on the radio the other day say that when Jesus died on the cross and the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom, the Ark of the Covenant was not in the temple. And I had never heard that before. Is that a true statement? Yes, it is. Thank you, Bruce. That's a great question. Yes, it is. Um, The Ark was lost sometime during the Babylonian invasion. There's a a hundred different theories about where the Ark went, but the Ark of the Covenant was lost. Um, um, Some say Jeremiah carried off. Some say that it was carried off to Ethiopia, uh, but it was taken away along with many of the other religious artifacts of of the Jews in the Babylonian um, captivity. Um, There would be a replica of the mercy seat in Herod's temple in the time Jesus was there. Uh, Still, it was true that only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies uh, only one day a year on the Day of Atonement. But the actual Ark of the Covenant had long been missing. And uh, even to this day, Bruce, Indiana Jones hasn't been able to find it. So, um, (laughs) but uh, yeah, it was not there. The, 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 The real import here is that Jesus' death on the cross replaced the figurative religious symbol of the presence of God with the real presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ, the real Passover lamb. So yes, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was missing. Um, The religion was no longer going to be the way. Can you imagine, Bruce, what it would be like for those priests who, who knew they could never go into the Holy of Holies, those who attended, the Levites who attended, the priests like Zechariah, uh, when when uh, Gabriel appeared to him and announced that he was going to have a son, um, they, they could only wonder what, what was inside the Holy of Holies. Well, when that veil was torn and the Holy of Holies was exposed on that day with all of those Jews in and around the temple at that time, but all of those on the street, they would see for the very first time into the Holy of Holies, and they would think they were going to die, and and yet that was simply God saying, now access to heaven has been made available. Does that help, Bruce? Yes, hallelujah. Uh, Yes, amen to that. How do Jews... What is the mindset of the Jew in earning salvation today? Maybe not earning, but gaining salvation today. What is their mindset? Well, I can't speak for all Jews because many Jews, in fact, most Jews now are secular Jews. And then there are different traditions in, uh, in Judaism, as there always have been. So, so the reactions are varied. But generally speaking, a Jew would say, because they're God's chosen people, they're already what we would say saved. They wouldn't refer to it that way. They're God's people, so they're going to be uh, in heaven. Uh, they're they're going to be, um, um, rabbis used to teach that, that Father Abraham stood guard uh, 
uh, at the gates of hell just to make sure that no Jew accidentally slipped in. Uh, so their idea of of salvation is is not what we understand uh, just by virtue of being Jews. I like the way though you you changed the word. You said earning may not be the right word, but it really was, because what Jews believe, like all religions believe, is that they've got to work their way to God. They've got to do good things, and that's a result of 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 uh, God calling them out. The real problem, of course, as we know, is that. Um, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and there's no way that Jews are going to get there. So their idea is that they're chosen by God, they're insulated or protected by God, and Jesus came, and then later Paul would come, and Peter and the others would come and try to tell them that it simply wasn't the way it was going to be. They believe what the rabbis teach them, uh, and um, they, they've got this false sense of security based on religion, uh, Bruce, that so many others have. Uh, if I may quote you, religion and not relationship. Yep. Well, Pastor Ron, thank you for your time very much. And I'm looking thank forward you, to talking to you again. Goodbye. Thanks, sir. Bruce. Great to hear from you. Bruce is a long-time listener and been uh, used to call quite often. And I worry about people, Bruce, when I don't hear from them. So thanks for calling. You know, Tonight in Acts chapter 17, one of the things that we're going to deal with is uh, Paul in Athens, and he sees all of these idols, and he says, I perceive that you're a very religious people, or very superstitious people, the King James says. Well, that's all religion is. It's just superstition, trying to work our way to God, instead of God reaching down for sinful man. The veil's been torn. Thanks, Bruce. We've got 30 minutes left in our week. We'd love your live calls, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Back in two minutes. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back sometimes two minutes goes really really fast i almost missed the break 340-9585 for your live calls and questions here is a question from our email inbox from drew um, Pastor on the Bible does not specify exactly when God made angels. There's a passage in Job which says, Who laid its cornerstone, meaning the earth, uh, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now here's his question. In the Job passage, is it correct to presume the sons of God are angels? If the sons of God shouted for joy during creation week, then they had to exist before God made the heavens and the earth, right? Where did the angels live before Genesis 1-1? If they had no home, then God had to have made them during creation week. Angels could not have always been eternal like God. If so, they would be gods with a big G as well. Uh, Is it correct to think that angels recognize Time versus the eternality of God, your thoughts. Drew, I think you've got it mostly right. Um, the Bible doesn't say, um, and, and therefore we don't know. I always refer to some time in eternity past. But clearly, um, angels were in existence. They had been created by God. They are not gods. Uh, they are simply ministering spirits sent by God to minister to those of us who inherit salvation, according to Hebrews. Um, but um, um, we're just not going to know when, in fact, angels were made. But you are right in the Job passage. It is correct to presume the sons of God are angels. Uh, in fact, the term sons of God only is used um, sparingly, and in every instance to refer to angels, angelic beings. Now, that presents a problem for those who reject the idea that angels took the daughters of men, sons of God, the evil fallen angels took the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6, and the result was the Nephilim, and, and it was such an evil attack on the world that 
God's only recourse was to flood the world and judge it. Um, it was, I believe, as I've said before in answer to this question many times, the, um, uh, the, the, the most powerful attempt to pollute the human line so that Jesus couldn't come. That was the devil. Uh, and, and sons of God are used in that passage, and it only and always means angelic beings. So you're right. Um, it doesn't mean that uh, they were created uh, on creation week. It means that they were created, they were in existence when God created sort of a, a heavenly audience. Now, as to where they lived, um, they would have lived with God. Angels were in the presence of God. They're always in the presence of God, wherever that is. Paul refers to it as the third heaven in Second Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, that doesn't mean there are three levels of heaven. It just means first heaven would be our atmosphere. The second heaven is what we would call outer space. Uh, and then the third heaven is beyond all of that and sort of the, the, the dwelling place or the abode of God. So wherever... Uh, God is, that's where the angels would have been. Their ministry, Drew, would have changed uh, after creation because then they would have been involved in creation. They would have had um, um, ministries watching over people. Um, we know from Daniel chapter 10 that that there is uh, in that, that outer heaven, the, the uh, abode of God, there's a spiritual war going on all the time between good and evil. We know that good prevails because God is infinitely greater than than the devil. Um, but they were created in eternity past some time. We don't know where. Um, and they lived in the presence of God. One of the things, Drew, that amazes me the most about fallen angels, and I've thought about this so much over the, the years that I've been walking with the Lord, it's an amazing thing to me that angels who were in the presence of God could have been deceived by, by Lucifer, who is now Satan. It's an amazing thing. They were in the presence. I know many of you remember the old TV show, Touched by an Angel. Um, it was sort of new agey a little bit at times, and, and, and certainly doctrinally it wasn't all that correct. But one of the things I think that show did better than, than perhaps any other uh, media platform I've ever seen is that they demonstrated that war in heaven. They demonstrated the dark angels versus the good angels and the contrast between them. And I, I remember Monica, who was the, the lead actress playing uh, the, the angel with the lead role in the, uh, in the show. Um, one day she was talking to uh, one of the fallen angels and, and they, were, they were referring back to a relationship they had. And Monica looked at this, this angel and said, uh, who's now a demon, um, how could you have fallen? You were there. You were with him. How could you? And the angel, the, the demon, cut her off. Oh, we're not going to talk about that all over again, you know. And that's always stuck with me. They also did a great job on that program. I'm talking about the different levels of angels, both good and bad. And they had... Um, people that portrayed uh, sort of the, the, the devil and people that portrayed Michael the Archangel and, and whenever the devil showed up, it was John Schroeder, I don't, Dukes of Hazard, John Schroeder, if, if you remember him. Yeah, he's a great looking guy, he was very popular and would run for office in some of the, 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 the episodes. Well, that's what the devil would look like. He disguises himself as an angel of light. But but there would always be uh, the, the angel that was the counterpart or, or the, the portrayal of Michael, the archangel, who when, when the devil showed up, he showed up too. That's a very accurate portrayal of what our Bible tells us about what's going on in the spirit realm. So, Drew, I hope that answers your question and maybe interests you in one looking at some of the old episodes of Touched by an angel. 340-9585. We'd like to close the week with your questions today, so please don't hesitate to call. Toll free, you can call at 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question that's really sad, but it's kind of sad in a funny way. Uh, I'll explain. This is from Ben. My question is about marriage in heaven. If a person never got along with their spouse, will they be forced to remain married in heaven? <laughs> Ben, 
I hope and pray you're asking this question for somebody else. Not doesn't describe your relationship at home with your spouse. We will all be married to Jesus in heaven. Jesus said, we err because we do not know the scriptures. No one will be given in marriage in heaven. So, will spouses be forced to stay together? I think so, but not as a married couple, because we'll be married to Jesus. Now, here's what I know, and and Ben, this is a question that really sort of shipwrecked my early walk with the Lord, because I'd blown it so much with Paula. Um, I I created such a misery uh, for her that... When I finally was saved and was in love with my wife all over again because Jesus gave me his heart for her, I thought one day when I came across that passage, you mean we're not going to be married in heaven? And I was really upset about that. I thought, well, I've blown it so badly. I thought at least getting saved, we'd have another chance to do it and we'd be married forever. Well, we're going to be married forever, but it's to Jesus, not to one another. Having said that, Ben, um, yeah, we're going to be together. And our love is going to be greater, more passionate than it ever was here on earth. Everything in heaven is. So, yeah, we're going to stick together. Now, if you never got along with somebody, you're miserable with them. There won't be any misery in heaven. It'll be a completely new order of things. And you will love completely with the love of God You will be like he is, incapable of sin. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say it because if that's going to be our eternal state, we ought to start practicing it now. So, Ben, if this isn't you, you tell whoever it is that's asking you to fix their marriage. If it is you, I'm telling you, fix your marriage. You and your wife... Get saved. If you're already saved, then be obedient to the Lord and let him fill your heart with passion, his passion, his love for one another. I just can't imagine how much pain it causes our Lord to see so many Christian marriages floundering, to see so many Christian husbands and wives in pain and filled with misery and unwilling to do anything about it. Marriage was an institution given by God to us for our pleasure, for our enjoyment, to work with a partner in our service for the Lord. And to have so many Christians who seemingly are okay with being in a stagnant, loveless, passionless marriage, sort of just bearing through it, is unbelievably painful, Ben. So if this question is personal for you, well then repent, get along with your spouse, do everything you can, and when you're doing everything you can, God will work on your spouse. So I hope that helps. Here's a question from Fred. He wants to know, am am I, are you, Pastor Ron, familiar with the current um, Southern Baptist Convention controversy over doctrinal direction, Calvinism, or more traditional Baptist theology? If so, would you comment? Fred, I am. um, We have been, um, let me rephrase. I have been interested in doing a lot of reading about this simply because uh, I have watched Reformed theology, Calvinism destroy so many churches. Um, naively, I wasn't aware uh, until just uh, about three years ago that there were so many um, Southern Baptist churches uh, that were Reformed in their theology. Um, and, and then there's this young, called Neo-Calvinist movement, that's sort of taken over the Southern Baptist Convention. And and the reason this is coming out in the media now, Fred, is because there is a Southern Baptist Convention that is either just happened or is about to happen, uh, and they're going to elect a new president, and the, the, uh, the, the man that everybody thought was going to be appointed is a neo-Calvinist. 
and there's been just recently a movement coming up supporting uh, the candidacy of another person uh, because they want to go back to the more traditional Baptist roots, the Adrian Rogers, um, uh, Charles Stanley roots when when they were the um, um, leaders, the people in power in the SBC. Um, men like Jack Graham, uh, who is uh, not a Calvinist, who is very traditional in his doctrine. Um, they're, they're taking a more active role behind the scenes, and I think it's a good thing. Um, the sort of the Albert Moeller faction um, and so many others, just the, the, if, if they're young pastors in the SBC, they're probably neo-Calvinists. Uh, and it's just really caused a lot of damage, a lot of pain. So um, the only comment that I would have, Fred, is that I am opposed to anything um, becoming Calvinist. Um, they are brothers and sisters in the Lord, for sure. Uh, what they believe is not heretical. But the damage that that doctrine does to the character the nature of God, the damage that it does to the passion in a Christian life. I've seen it over and over and over, and there's just no good fruit at all. So, Fred, that's about the best I can do with that. Here is a question that just came in from Cindy in Austin. When it comes to DNA, when was the Hebrew race created? When did it start? Cindy, it didn't it wasn't created. It was bestowed. Uh, Abraham was the first Jew, uh, a man called out by God in covenant relationship, the covenant sealed with the circumcision covenant. Um, but Abraham was the first one. So Abraham's DNA would be just like the DNA of the people around him at the time. So he was the first Jew. And as um, he and his family members would go out and multiply. Uh, that was a Jewish race. But, uh, you know, if you did DNA samples of all the Semitic religions or Semitic peoples, um, all throughout the Middle East, they look alike. They, they would be the same. Um, you know, there would be refinements as the gene pool would narrow. But um, um, Abraham was the first Jew. And that's where it all began, Cindy. And that's when the Hebrew race was created. It was not a race as much as it was a people belonging to God, a people called out from God. So I think that's very important. We get the idea that, that uh, uh, you know, I, I've actually had people tell me, Cindy, that um, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve spoke Hebrew. Uh, that's silliness. It's just simply not true. Um, if we could view Adam and Eve's DNA, it would be magnificent uh, because it'd be unstained by sin. But from that, from the fall forward, um, that's when death entered the world and we became corrupt. Um, Abraham was from an idol worshiping family, uh, or the Chaldees, and um, just like everybody else until he met God. And that's significant for us. Because instantly he was changed. Didn't mean his DNA changed. He changed. Well, in the same way, when we become Christians, we're changed. The old is gone, the new has come. Too many of us, we live in the old life, the old flesh, instead of living in the newness of life. I always think, Cindy, and I just always giggle when I think about this, but, but I imagine Abraham going home and telling Sarai, who became Sarah, that he met God. Now, because they were idol worshippers, she would say, well, which one? He would say, no, the real God. Oh, come on, there's not one, there's a lot of gods. And he would say, no, this God knew my name. He spoke to me. Gods don't speak, she would say. And he would convince her that God did speak. And she would ask, well, what did he say? And he said that we're to leave this place. Well, where are we going to go? He said to leave your family. Where are we going to go? To a place I'll show you. 
And Abraham at that instant was so transformed that she believed him. And they began walking with God, became a friend of God, the father of our faith. So, Cindy, I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from Anonymous. How can someone increase their faith? Anonymous, Paul and I dealt with this on the program a little bit uh, yesterday. Maybe you can um, go into the archives and listen to the program. Um, but, but the only way that you can increase your faith is to trust God. You know, when somebody goes to a gym, the way you get strong is to lift weights. And it's hard. Pretty soon you lift a weight and it's not as hard as it was. And then it's time to increase the weight. And you start working out your muscles all over again. Well, it's exactly the same principle spiritually with faith. We trust God. We trust Him first for salvation. That's a gift given to us by God. The faith to believe comes from God. But then when God starts walking with us and testing us and challenging us, He wants us to believe that He wants to bless us. He wants us to believe that He's got us in His hands. And so He brings us to these crossroads. It happens all the time. And then when we're at that crossroad, we've got a decision. Are we going to trust God or are we going to take matters into our own hands? Every time we take matters into our own hands, it's like lifting the same old weight that's no longer heavy to you anymore. But he brings us to a place where there's no easy answer. He often asks us to do things that simply don't make any sense at all. They're completely contrary to the way we've been raised in this world. And he says, trust me. Just trust me. And every time you trust him, you get a little stronger in faith. Every time you trust him, he gets to show a little more of himself to you. You get to experience more of his power. And that's the only way. Faith isn't something that happens to us. Faith is something we exercise. It's a spiritual muscle. We have to exercise it. And when we do that, then our faith grows. If we never really let God have his way in our lives, if we never stop taking matters into our own hands, well, then our faith doesn't grow. So trust God. Hebrews eleven six says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. That means conversely it is also true when we demonstrate faith. Can you imagine the smile of God? on your life. So Anonymous, trust Him. Don't look for your own solutions. Just be in the Word, learn who He is. And when He challenges you to take steps of faith, you take Him and wait for the glory of God to be manifest in your life and through your life. It's a good thing. Here is another anonymous question. Um, God promises us peace when we get saved. What about those times when I'm afraid or simply don't have peace? Well, anonymous, the peace that God promises us is the peace with God. There's no peace of God until we've first made peace with God. That's important. So the peace he promises us when we get saved is that we've now made peace with God. The peace of God is another matter. The peace of God is trusting him in those times when we're afraid. Being afraid doesn't mean you don't have faith, or being afraid doesn't mean you don't have peace. It just means that he's asking you to do something that's scary. And when you're afraid, it's hard to have what we would call peace. So in those times you don't have peace, that's when you have to draw nearer to Jesus than ever before. Those are the times when you have to purpose in your heart, no matter how afraid I am, I'm going to do it. Paula has a saying, she says it to the women here all the time. She says, if you're afraid, do it afraid. And then the peace of God in the person and the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon us. Often anonymous people will say, well, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to obey God, but I'm waiting until he gives me peace. And, And usually what that means 
is it I'm going to do it when I'm not afraid, or I'm going to do it when I know how to do it, or how God is going to provide. But that's not walking by faith, that's walking by sight. The peace of God comes in the presence of our Jesus. He is God. And so when the peace of God comes upon us, it's only because we're in the presence of God. That does not mean that we're not going to be afraid. Jesus, by definition, had no peace in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we know that he didn't need faith. He was God. But he was afraid. He was experiencing things he'd never experienced. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about the many beatings that he took, the times that they were despairing of life, even those times when he was discouraged, we would say depressed. There's no peace in all of that. There's anxiousness, there's worry and concern. But by doing it anyway, the peace of God then comes upon you. So in those times when you're afraid or don't have peace, just walk with Jesus. Be with him. Be in his presence. Spend more time with him than you do with the thing that you're afraid of. Lift your eyes up to the heavens. The psalmist writes, where does my help come from? It comes from him, the maker of heaven. Well, sometimes we're so close to the things that we're afraid of and the things that we're worried about that we can't see God. It's in those times you've got to take a step back from the things that you're terrified of and raise your eyes all the way to the heavens. As you raise your eyes to the heavens, you'll see Jesus and the peace of God will come upon you. I want to be very candid with you, Anonymous, because this is too often misrepresented from pulpits. There's not a single day of my life that I'm not scared to death. Not many pastors will be that honest with you. I'm afraid every day. I don't want to blow it. I don't want to make some foolish decision. I don't want to hurt people that that God has entrusted their care to me. Most of all, I don't want to break Jesus' heart. So I'm terrified. That drives me into the presence of the Lord. And when that drives me into the presence of the Lord... Well, that's when his peace settles. It doesn't take my fear away. It doesn't take all of the worries away. But it enables me to walk with Jesus, no matter how afraid I am. And I personally think Anonymous, nothing pleases him more than that. So I hope that helps. Hey, thanks for a great week on the program. Remember tonight, I'm going to finish Acts chapter 17. It's an important Bible study. Wherever you go to church... Be a blessing to your body. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll see you Monday at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.